Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Christina Maurice, good evening. Prosecutors just turned over 2,500 pages of documents and hours of video surveillance to Rex Heurman's defense team. His family was not in court for the 32-minute conference. It was our first glimpse of the hulking accused serial killer since the stunning Gilgo Beach murder case broke last month. Families of victims walked out of court in silence and grief, having just seen the accused serial killer up close, his mop of unwashed hair and tight blue jacket. 59-year-old Rex Heurman glared towards those assembled as he left in handcuffs. There's no plea deal. He said from the moment I met him that I did not do this. So we're prepared to go forward. We will defend this case in a court of law, and we will go to trial in this case. The court conference was brief, no application for bail or change of venue. Heurman remains in custody as prosecutors turn over reams of discovery, photos, videos, DNA, hours of surveillance. It will take months to review. You're talking about uh, 13 years worth of investigation, uh, so it is, I'm, I'm not going to speak for defense counsel, but suffice to say, it is a massive amount of material, and don't forget, it's continuing. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to conclude my conversation with the legend Nick Edwards of True Crime Garage, and we will be discussing the case of the Gilgo Beach Four, and join us as we wrap up our conversation. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, enjoy the show. You basically had it going from one person to another and then finally it ends up on this person's desk and they actually make the appropriate moves and start pursuing leads my i'm still perplexed though that these guys can take time off from killing i know you said this about passion and you know like i remember like hey, my skiing's my passion. I didn't do it for 11 years. So, I mean, that's possible that it happens, you know. But it is kind of crazy that he's just stopped. I know he's scared or whatever, but, you know, some of these guys, they'd go to another place and commit another crime. And I think that's kind of why they opened or started looking at older cases in Vegas and in South Carolina where he did have property or his brother has property. And it's worthwhile for them to do that yes. because who the hell knows? Well, and it, that that is a large factor that separates an organized from a disorganized killer. Here we have a very organized killer that that seems to have possessed the ability to stop. Where where a disorganized killer, or where you have a serial killer that it, their their killings are based around paranoia, schizophrenia, any kind of uh, mental illness. Uh, they may not possess the ability to stop because they're driven by something else. He's driven by by sexual fantasy, violent sexual fantasies, and he's able to closet those and keep those under wraps. Why can he do that? Uh, I, I can't tell you why, but what I can tell you is that he probably had these violent sexual fantasies for most of his life, and he's an older man, and he and he kept these... He kept the the uh, the demons uh, deep below the surface for many years before he started killing. And so it wasn't that hard to push them back down 
and keep them at bay at some point. And so, yeah, that's one of the big factors in, in separating a disorganized killer from an organized killer. But then also when you talk about your passion, my passion and other people's passions that are listening to this, this episode right now, our passions are not illegal. Right. And, right. and not risky. Our passions. What do, the, what is the consequence of spending more time on those, on those passions, less time with our families, uh, spending spending more money than we want to on something, um, having one hell of a good time, right? Where his consequences sure. are life imprisonment or uh, or death penalty or and being outed uh, to to his family and and outed to his colleagues and 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 members of society that he, the, this guy's a, a complete monster that he's he's a deviant he's he's gross, um, right. And so, so I think that that's a large part of it too. I look at this guy's like you mentioned it because you mentioned his age, and do you think? Of, I mean, he's fifty nine, so he would have been in his late forties doing committing these crimes. What the fuck was what the heck was he doing before that? I mean, I know that like people he was are having a family. He was having a family yeah. and he was he was thinking yeah. about all this stuff. He was he was he was thinking his way through, hey, I got this problem of here's this thing that I want to do really badly and something mm-hmm. that I've been told my whole life that you should not do, you're not allowed to do. Right. And if you do it and you get caught, everything goes away for you. And so he's thinking about it. He's planning it. And you know, the average age of an active serial killer uh in the United States uh, for when they for when they start, the average age for when when one would start is late twenties, and oddly enough, the average age for when a serial killer is active is in their late twenties. So you bring up a good question. We have the science, we have the we have the data to to tell us when these guys typically start, but this guy may not have started until his early mid forties. Yeah, so that makes just it just brings up a lot of questions about what he was doing to fulfill that fantasy during that time because again you know that he's thinking about this stuff you don't just automatically wake up one day in your 40s and go i'm gonna be a serial killer and it's just not something that happens and so like you had mentioned about being an organized killer i mean raider organized killer would you think was bundy a disorganized killer because he the way that he got caught at the end. Well, you can, or was he an organized killer that became a disorganized killer? You can have you can have types that that fall into both categories, but with Bundy, he's interesting because he appears to have been a very organized killer in the beginning, but then he morphs into this disorganized killer. But keep in mind, he's he, he gets caught multiple times before he's finally caught for good. And so he, in a weird way, he, I think he just completely spiraled out of control where he could, he could not even control himself anymore. Uh, where, where, when he was an organized killer, he was very much in control of himself. Uh, everything about Bundy's early crimes that, that we, the ones that we know of, um, and I want to be very clear about that because I think that there are others out there, but the ones that we know of, uh, he was, he was he's practically the poster boy for an organized serial killer um, b- bodies that he's able to return to and, and, and have 
um, acts of necrophilia with them for extended periods of time that are never discovered. Um, body concealment's a big part of separating, separating an organized killer from a disorganized killer. And what do we know about Rex and his crimes? He, he concealed the bodies and did a very good job, unfortunately, of concealing the Gilgo four. And he had a very, um, uniform methodology of concealing those four bodies. Now you bring up the good question of, could there have been somebody beforehand? very likely and it it probably would not mirror in any way the the Gilgo 4 you know we know with Dennis Rader the learn. yeah Dennis Rader with on multiple times attempted to attack someone or abduct someone in public well what does he do when he's and I hate to use this word but I mean we're trying to we're trying to analyze this here um and so you have to use these words but what we do know is that once he was successful What's the big difference between that crime when he eliminates half of the Otero family and his two previous attempts at an abduction or a murder? Those were conducted outside in public places and he was unsuccessful. He was successful with the Oteros because he went into their home. He watched their home. He staked it out. He knew their movements and and he went into their home and he did his dirty deeds, his evil deeds behind closed doors. And so you have to wonder with Rex, if he has done anything before, what did he learn from any missteps that he had? And and the, the thing, too, is if he has attempted any of this before, it again, it would very likely look very different than these situations. He's using burner phones. He's using cell phones that are not his to to procure the victim and and which seems very learned you know what i mean like that seems like something that he either picked up from the movies or like it just seems like either he learned that that was the best method and or he found that that was the best method it just seems super organized for just like the first time well exactly and i think part of that too that makes me wonder if to what level has he tried any of this stuff out before is I think that the where he was getting these four victims from and how he was procuring them and in in getting the appointment or the meeting with them I think that has to go back to the victimology that that this was the type of victim that he that he wanted that he desired and he clearly, it appears to me, Bill, that that he didn't want to just pull up on a street corner and see whoever was there and try to get him into his car. He didn't want to do that. No, he's he's making phone calls. He's getting onto Backpage and Craigslist and things of that nature, and he's finding the girls there. And and I think that goes to victimology and I don't want to get into the, I don't want to be degrading to anybody because I, I'm a person that, that sex workers, I, I empathize for them. And I, and I, and I don't even view it as a crime. I don't, I don't, I think it should be decriminalized, but that's a whole different discussion for a whole different day. If, if you don't mind me using some, uh, some pardon my French bill, cause it's very bad, but, um, the, to break it down as simple as possible, I'll, I'll go back to what one of my heroes said, George Carlin. 
uh, selling is legal. Mm. Fucking is legal. Why isn't selling fucking legal? Um, and <laughs> so I, I don't have a problem with that. And, but what, without getting too negative on anybody or any type of person here is that it's a different type of victimology to pull up to a street corner and talk to some young women there than to use things like Backpage, Craigslist, cell phones to procure. I mean, if you if you want to create a, a ranking or a hierarchy within an industry, um, I think people are pretty clear on on what I'm trying to say here. And I so I sure. think I think he desired this type of victim for a, a multitude of reasons. And you're right. I don't I don't think that that's something that he just came up with on his own one day. I think it's something that he he learned or he thought about it and considered different avenues for a very long time before he decided to go this route. He he very likely he very likely taped up and packaged up all of these remains at his home. And that's why I think we found his wife's hair uh on some of the some of the items that were that were, you know, buried or concealed with these victims' bodies. I cannot not mention the Atlantic City Four or the Eastbound Strangler in this without in this conversation because we talked about whether or not he had committed any crimes before. These were four sex workers that were found in two thousand and six i believe and they were all found behind the golden key motel and they were all in different like 50 feet away from each other and they all had the same exact and they were all killed within a relatively short period of time isn't that correct i believe uh, yeah i believe that that is the case like eight weeks or something something along those lines and i mean i've I've seen it mentioned a couple times here and there but i mean if there's any way to get your start, he got away. If you did that and got away with it. Right. But, and I'm not saying that, that, that he's not the, you know, responsible for those, but it, going off of memory here, Bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, but many, if not all of those victims were African-American women. No, they no? were not. No, um, they, they fell into that category of, they kind of looked a lot like the um, victims from the Gilgo Beach. The Gilgo Beach. 4? Yeah. See, that, that, then that makes it all the more interesting to me because one thing I was going to point out is, you know, and I don't I don't want to get into too, mu- too much into the weeds of Profiling 101, but one of the first things that they teach you when you, when you start to learn about profiling and how to do that type of work is that uh, we sit here in 2023 with a lot of data. Right. A lot of a lot of uh, convictions, a lot of people that we've discovered that they were killing, how they were killing, how they were getting their victims and why they chose certain victims. And one thing that, that we learned from that is that typically not all of the time, but the overwhelming majority of the time. And when I say the overwhelming majority of the time, I mean, we're put this into the in the 90 percentile. It, typically, one kills within their own race. Uh, when it comes to serial killers. So take a look at this. Those are the eastbound strangler. That's the eastbound. Yes. You know what? That is. They look a lot like the Gilgo Beach, don't they? 
Well, not only do they look a lot like the Gilgo Beach, I was I was trolling the internet the other day, um, not looking for anything on Gilgo or Lisk or or East or the East uh, Bound Strangler or anything like that. I was just doing some research for the show and came across this this graphic that somebody had put on their on their website. And it had the Gilgo four on there and it had some of the still unidentified victims that were found near the Gilgo four and some of the other victims that have been uh, identified and found near the Gilgo four. But it also had those four young women's pictures on there as well. And I didn't realize that they had kind of mashed that together when whoever created that graphic. And I thought when you showed me that at first, I thought I was looking at pictures of suspected Lisk victims. So my God, that looks you're, I mean, it, I, I, I hate, I hate to say these words, but it's, it looks like the, the, the killer went shopping at the same human market. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, they look the same. Like That's that amazing. is really freaky. Isn't that, isn't that scary? Like how similar they look. I just, and I've talked about that with Maggie and, and she thought that there was a possibility that there was a connection. And this was again before there was an arrest, but, since there's been an arrest and we know that this guy's MO is committing these crimes when his family is out of town, maybe they need to go back a little bit further and see what was going on in 2006 when these bodies were found because, hey, if he found a place where he could hide a body one weekend and then the next weekend do the same thing, and then I'm just saying. It appears based off of the evidence that we have against him in these three homicides that his wife did travel pretty regularly. And so when, when did that start? And when she would travel, it's for an extended period of time. It's for a weekend. It's for a full week. It, um, I think some of the information in those documents suggested that not only does she enjoy traveling and that's why she's gone on some of these trips, but she, I may, she may have a sister or family out of state. Uh, and I know these states are very close, but I think we're talking about Maryland, New Jersey, things of that nature, but still going away for a weekend or going away for a couple of nights. And if somebody like Rex can get away, go find a place to a seedy motel to stay in and procure a victim and then just walk out back and leave them in the ditch behind the, and, and you know what? It, that's interesting though too because look at the look at how much effort he went to into concealing the Gilgo 4 and did mm -hmm. look sorry he did a good job of it they weren't found for a very long period of time mm -hmm. and we can even get get into how he disposed of them here in just a minute but i wonder if you're right did he learn that from committing those crimes they were found pretty soon after he committed the crimes but but the reverse of that, surprisingly, not Sunni either, right? Like he, there was little to no effort to conceal those bodies. And not they, really. They still no. Took, they still took a couple days or maybe a week to be discovered. They were technically in a drainage ditch. I mean, you mm -hmm. can see it online. You can Google it. it. Basically, there was a little. I mean, clearly they weren't left in the hotel room. That's definitely when you're not trying to conceal something. This is an attempt to conceal for. A period of time because it's not like the back of this motel was up against some other building it was 
a drainage ditch and like a field. So yes. we're not talking uh, people are going to be walking their dogs. Actually, I think that's how they were found. <laughs> but um, it just wasn't one of those common areas. So it was sort of kind of barren. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. Well, and think about this too. One could One could carry that lifeless body out the back door of that seedy motel in the middle of the night under the cover of, of darkness and carry the, the lifeless body 50 feet, 50 yards, whatever it is, and place them there and then walk back in. The, your your only threat, your, and we talked about this years ago when we talked about the eastbound uh, case, your threats of being discovered is one, and, and this is what we were hoping, that one of the sex workers would have been seen going in or in or out of the, the room with this guy or going to the room where somebody's was staying. And hopefully there's a paper trail to who was staying there at the time, or the other threat to the killer is being seen carrying that body. But once you've placed that body in that drainage ditch and you've made your way back into the motel walls, you can, You've just wiped your hands clean of that one. Just hope that they don't find any of your DNA or fingerprints or blood or anything like that uh, with the victim. But maybe maybe he learned that, you know, just even that little amount of effort, they're not found for a couple of days. Imagine if I spent some time and really thought about how I discarded of this item how long would it take for them to find it or how long would it, it could, it could be forever. I could be, I could live my full life out and maybe it's not found until they break ground and in, in, on some big construction project in the area. So based off of the documents that were released, we do know how he was disposing of the Gilgo four. And so the first victim they're they're all wrapped in burlap. So mm -hmm. he, he's basically taking his problem, which is the lifeless body of his victim and now he has to make it into some kind of package that he can dispose of. So they're wrapped in burlap. The first one was wrapped in burlap and then belts uh, were used to make a tight little package. Right. And not just a tight little package. We'll, we'll go into this a little bit more in a second. But then the other three victims were wrapped in the burlap. But now Rex has run out of belts. So what is he using? He's using tape. Uh, white tape and clear tape are both listed in those documents. And so you you can kind of picture this because we've seen this in the movies, right? When somebody's killed and they're rolled up in a in a car, in a rug and then somebody takes uh, three big strips of duct tape and and they wrap it around, you know, the, the center of the body, locking the, the arms to the torso and then wrapping the legs together. And in this case, that's very much what what Rex did. But those the the tape and the belts not only provided a way to make a tight nice package but also provided him with handles so when he parks his car on the side of the road because these the these packages that he's disposing of are found a good distance from the road and so i think we can all kind of picture this he's using his suv or the back of his truck and it he puts the package in there on probably under the cover of being inside of his garage or very near his home and then driving to that location, parking. One thing that we talked about on True Crime Garage and we talked about on your show, Bill, one of the brilliant things about disposing of things in this area is that you could it's it's a straight shot. This road is a straight, long stretch of road. 
and it's very dark out there at night. One could pull up and cut the lights to their vehicle. And if there was going to be a vehicle coming your way, you would see their headlights and be alerted to that many minutes ahead of time, many miles ahead of time. And so if you go, oh, shit, I can't I can't be seen doing anything here right now. There's a car coming. He has enough time to close up the vehicle, get back in and keep on cruising. But yeah, he walks to the back of the vehicle, unloads the package and then uses the belts or then the tape as handles to carry this thing out several uh, yards. I mean, it's a good walk uh, on some of these uh, where they recovered some of the the victims here. So uh, that's how that went down. And you're right. How did he arrive at that being the the best method for what he wanted to do? That's the question that I think the investigators need to take a deep dive on. Talking of a deep dive here, let's analyze the investigation real quick. So, and we'll get into what I think is the biggest misstep in this investigation. But you have to wonder, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give them the benefit that maybe not all of this cell phone technology was available to them at the genesis of their investigation. Now, it it very well may have been. And nobody really thought this through. Because think about this. You have to wonder, Bill, is this a situation where fresh eyes come in and somebody's like, hey, guys, I got this brilliant idea, but but... In the end, it solves the case, so it is brilliant, but it's also not that brilliant. It's like an idea that maybe a previous investigator should have had. So if I'm the new investigator and I'm, I'm reviewing this case and I'm going, okay, so we have at least at least one instance, if not several, where I have proof that somebody using a another victim's cell phone so somebody uses a victim's cell phone and, and calls a family member of that victim and taunts them. It's very easy to believe that that's the killer, right? We can all agree on that. Yes. So it appears to me that at some point, Bill, that that's where that, that lead ended. They're like, oh, okay. So the killer used the phone to call the victim's family and taunt them. Then it took at some point, it had to have taken another investigator with fresh eyes. That's going, wait a second. If this guy contacted the family, who else did he call with this cell phone? Why aren't we checking activity on that cell phone before and after the taunting phone calls that we know happened? And then they're going, wait a second. Victim number three was contacted with victim number two cell phone. Okay, who else did he contact with victim number two cell phone? All right, where was that cell phone at all points when it was being used? That's clearly what happened here. That's how. That's what led them to Rex. The confirmation that it is Rex was the DNA. Sure. So that's that's where it's kind of like this brilliant moment, but also this moment of going, well, why the hell did somebody else come up with this? Um, now, the big misstep in this case is, and I, I apologize because I cannot remember which victim it is, but I can picture the uh, roommate talking about it. One of our victims was living with a, with a male roommate or staying with a male roommate. 
and he knew what she was doing uh, for a living and or for work. And she was trying to get out of the business um, and she was trying to, to straighten some things out in her life. And he says this was information that was not privy to to the public. This came out after they make the arrest. He says to police, hey, about a week before she disappeared, I came home and I ended up fighting with this very large man that I'd never seen before, like a, like a, a physical altercation. I come home and he's like uh, doing something violent towards her, my friend. And so I jump in and do the, the manly thing and the rightful thing and try to defend my friend. And he's like, I scrap with this dude. And then he takes off in this vehicle and it was a, uh, a Chevy avalanche. It looked like it was one of those newer, weird looking trucks. You know, anybody that's seen a Chevy avalanche knows what I'm talking about. It doesn't fully look like a truck, although you would describe it as a truck. General description would be truck. But his description of weird looking truck makes sense. They were able to determine from that statement a couple of things. One very large man, he described him as a white dude who was about six foot four, six foot five, and over 200 pounds. He described the truck and they were like, okay, well, that's probably a Chevy Avalanche, which was relatively new at the newer at the time, generation one Chevy Avalanche. Those two descriptions, even though there's no direct connection between that man, that vehicle, and the disappearance of that victim a couple of days or a week later, those descriptions were never released to the public. Why is that a big misstep? Because of, of two things. One, at the time, it's not a common vehicle. Two, Rex Hererman, Rex Howerman, however we want to say his last name, is not, the, not a common average body type. He's a very large white male. This could this could have set set off some flags, sounded some alarms for some people. They they could have found this guy a lot sooner based off of there's a reason why they released descriptions of vehicles and and possible suspects to the public. Uh, they're asking for the help and sometimes they get that help. And here it seems seems very strange to me when you have something so unique like that, that that's not released to the public. And what's weird about that, too, is that the reports after he was arrested were they helped connect him with the Chevy Avalanche. Like, you're right. If they would have let that information out when it uh, first occurred. And again, let's not forget that Gilbert was being followed by a black SUV or truck. The other thing, too, is how many how many vehicles? Again, that's not a common vehicle at that time. How many of those vehicles were registered in the area? Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, he lived like a handful of miles away from. So it's not a Honda Accord. <laughs> Right, right. Those those are the missteps in in the investigation. And then I'm just thankful that somebody at some point, a team of people came up with the idea of, wait a second, we need to look, we need to start looking more into all this cell phone information because that's, that's what ultimately led them to, to the killer. Yeah. And look, he couldn't stop himself. See, that's another similarity to, to Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader couldn't stop himself from taunting the police 
with leaving his little Barbie dolls and, and, and cereal boxes on the side of the road and writing his own book about his own autobiography and, and typing it up on the, on the church computer on a floppy disk. He couldn't, he couldn't freaking stop himself. And Rex couldn't stop himself either. It wasn't good enough for Rex to just kill and end this person's life. No, he had to call and taunt the family afterwards on more than one occasion. And that might be where he was getting his kicks. You know what I mean? If he knew that he couldn't kill anymore because the trail was, because the heat was on, as they say, it's very possible that that was what he was using to get that high or that endorphin rush that he would get from committing those crimes. Cause this is sort of like, Kind of like Gary Rid, no, not Ridgeway, but I think did Ridgeway was he necrophiliac as well? Um, there's a lot of suspicion that he was, but he killed with such frequency that I don't know that he knew where all the bodies were. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking um, I meant to say Bundy, but the whole like, you know, that's going and back and revisiting that crime, and getting off on it, and by him using burner phones to call these victims families that's to him getting his kicks could be and and rex rex if his wife's going to be gone for three days four nights a full week what have you he may have killed them early and then kept them for a day or two before disposing of them that's disgusting so that is our good old friend Rex Howerman, Hurman, Gilgo Beach monster, serial killer, potential eastbound strangler. I mean, my goodness gracious, this guy is ridiculous. The the great news though is that this is a, just another one of these big cases that's that's working its way to being fully solved, fully resolved. And 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 the fascinating thing. To, the fascinating thing to me, too, is that what separates this case from several others that we've examined on True Crime Garage is that I remember, and you remember, and your listeners will remember, when we first became aware of the Long Island serial killer. So this is a case that many of us have followed the investigation from the from the original discovery all the way up until uh, today where we have Rex appearing in court. So it's... It's fascinating on that level to be able to see and witness and observe something from start to almost finish. And and so that that's very different from a lot of the cases that you talk about on your show and a lot of the cases that I talk about on True Crime Garage. So go listen to True Crime Garage podcast. It's uh, it's a it's a really good show. <laughs> uh, we're coming up on 700 episodes. So we've Amazing. we've been doing this thing for a long time. If you've not heard of us before. And also, please check out my book uh, that came out in uh, May. Uh, the De- the Delphi Murders, the quest to find the man on the bridge that is available on Amazon. Also, currently we have some signed paperback copies available on our website, TrueCrimeGarage.com, on the store page. Awesome, man! That's so cool. I'm glad you're really killing it in the book uh, field, and uh, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. I do think there is going to be some more information that comes out a lot more information that comes out as this case progresses through the courts. Like you said, it is so cool. Not, no, that's, that sounded really bad. It's super interesting to watch a case start and fit to finish. And 
like you had mentioned, we don't typically get that opportunity. It's usually a case that's older than us or just it didn't happen in our formative years. But 2010, hell, we were very well aware of what was going on and the 24-hour news cycle was very much in effect. So we've seen this case from start to three quarters of the way. Now we're at the, you know, starting with the court trial and all that stuff. And we'll see if this guy pleads out or what he does. But I think there's going to be more bodies that get associated with this individual. I really hope and pray that they can give a name to some of these still unidentified victims. That will be the first step in trying to connect them to uh, Rex or to moving on and believing that it might be another killer, um, which I, I think there's probably a high probability that at least one of them were killed by another individual. So that's a whole nother problem that we got to correct at the same time. One thing that I think is absolutely fascinating, and I hope that it goes in this direction, and if by any chance that she is listening, the soon to be that's that's how we should address this woman, the soon to be ex-wife of Rex Howerman, uh, because she has filed for divorce. We we don't have to spend much time on on how many wrongs he has done to her and, and his his family. Um, but if you know, th- there's no revenge that she can have on this man. But one thing that she can do is to assist law enforcement. You brought up what has this guy done before he killed the Gilgo Four. Um, we do know that she traveled a good amount of, of of their marital life together. And at some point, she's going to have a quiet moment. At some point, she's going to have enough time to get settled and clear her head and go, you know what? How can I assist in this investigation? And one thing that she can do and one thing that she can get law enforcement to do for her by by granting them access to these items is is to tell law enforcement, you know what? It's very difficult for me to sit down and think of every trip that I took or every visit to extended family out of state that I took 10, 12, 15, 20, 25 years ago. But with your help, law enforcement, with we, we can go through my financials, we can go through credit card, uh, his credit card, my credit card. We can start coming up with dates and put together a timeline when I was not with him, because guess what? We've seen we have evidence that tells us some of the things he does when he is not with her. So let's find out all the times that they were not together and we're going to build a case that way. I think that would be incredibly easy for the police to do once she does get that sort of clear-minded, you know, who knows what she's going through because we're not here to judge. I mean, that's traumatic. Everything she's gone through is traumatic. So hopefully that day will come where she can sit down and say, I was gone for, yeah, I mean, they can trace that stuff and they should be able to connect some of these other cases. And I hope for the family's sake that they do. It will it will take some time because we're talking about going back uh, many years and 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 hopefully those records and uh, digitized or paper trails whatever are still there and, and still remain to this day because that'd be that'd be the way to to build a foundation of future investigations uh, of other potential homicides committed by this guy. All right. Well, I know that I have kept you longer than you planned as usual. 
it was an enjoyable chat, Bill, and I'm excited to see where this investigation will go. Yeah, you know, it's going to be really interesting. I think we are all kind of waiting to see what the next steps are and if there is any more connection to any of these other cases, because I think we all are waiting on that. But uh, hopefully, again, like I said, these families that do not have answers will hopefully one day get answers and it can be done through this individual. And uh, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing your knowledge with me. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much again to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for joining me this week to discuss the Gilgo Beach serial killer and the latest on the case. You can find his book wherever you pick up your favorite books. You can check out their podcast, True Crime Garage, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as you know, I do drop new episodes every Friday. And this week you got a two-pack, which was a special occasion. So uh, we will have a new episode next week as well. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you want to follow me on the cesspool that is Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, you can do so. And that is with my username at BillHuffman3. You could follow me on Instagram at slow underscore burn media. And that's S-L-O minus the W. So thanks again for listening. As always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 